0: It's that time again We go beyond the jive. Jive, 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 jive. Join our hosts, John Swan and Natalie B. Brave the sting of beginning to reap the sweet rewards. All you hive jive junkies out there, this is
1: the The Hive Hive Jive. Jive. Hi, happy April. Hi, happy April to you. Happy spring. Happy spring. We survived April Fool's Day. Uh, well, I don't know if you survived April Fool's Day. Um, it was there, was, there was a, well, see, there was an episode that came out on the main segment of the Hive Jive. Oh. From the year 2062, looking back and reflecting on everything that had taken place over the last 40 years. Wow. (laughs) That's funny. Uh,
0: Listen to that.
1: Ken was abducted by aliens and (laughs) became the uh, global spokesperson for the human race. God help us all
0: and
1: you were adopted by the bees as their natural queen and they carried you off into the heart of Africa and nobody ever (laughs) saw or heard from you again but we assumed you're okay because the way that the bees have responded to everything so yeah there's a lot of fun little random like the whole thing is random my mom listened to it and she was like at first, when it first started, she chuckled and then she got this pu- puzzle book on her <laughs> face. And then she was like, I wasn't really sure where that was going. And I was like, it wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> it was just, a, it was a four minute little, just because funny blurb. <laughs> That's lots of Easter eggs, right? Yeah. Just lots of, lots them. of fun little random things in there. Right. Um, so speaking of Ken, I, I I did actually hear from him today. What? I was worried. I was worried to even look at my phone because it was, I had, oh, I still have it in actually. I had my earbud in and it, it dinged and it was like, Ken Milo. And I was like, oh, and then it's like, ding, 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 ding. And I was like, oh God. <laughs> Oops. But um, he has, we talked about this on the podcast, maybe even on one of the bonus episodes a long time ago, season one, maybe sometime in season two about growing mushrooms. And oh, wow. he is now apparently that is his new thing is growing mushrooms. And so he sent me some pictures of some of his setups and some blue oyster mushrooms that he's growing. And he said, uh, you know me, I jump in head first in a big way. And so now I'm doing mushrooms. I have, and then he names off Rishi and a couple of different wood-spawning mushrooms. Talks about some people that he's had on his his show. And talking about mushrooms And then he was like Shame we can't do a podcast about mushrooms Hint, hint And I was like, no (laughs) Um, But then at the very end He has this little comment Says, oh yeah Not buying any more queens The redheaded mutts have finally learned How to handle the mites All of my colonies with purchased queens died And my feral colonies are the only ones left But they are surviving and doing great Gonna feed them today there's so many things that I could impact from that message, but I'm right. not going to.
0: <laughs> well, I do agree with him, though, that buying queens constantly is actually a losing proposition in the end. It's not sustainable. And I would argue that a lot of the queens that are available from breeders are not the best quality. They're reared from grafts. They're reared, at, you know, um, they're caged when they first get out and or just after they get mated, they don't get enough time to mature. There's all kinds of reasons why it's kind of a losing proposition in the end, if you do that too much.
1: I would agree in some regards. Um, mm-hmm. But taking the subject matter into context, I would also wager that it's unknown which colonies truly had purchased queens still and which ones oh, okay. didn't because <laughs> they the may difference. or may not have swarmed. That's a different issue. Yes. Uh huh. They may or may not have swarmed. So you may have put a purchase queen in there and now she's gone and you don't know because you didn't check. Right, and right. you are wagering that the ones that are left are the feral ones and that they're doing good on mites just because they're still around. But again, you haven't checked and you haven't done those mite counts. So a lot of that is speculation. <laughs> I mean, it's speculation I mean, that is yeah. correlated into a response.
0: OK, that that makes sense now. I, 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 You've worked with Ken quite a bit, so you know how it functions. But. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So that was uh, that was just my little funny ha ha. But there's an update for everybody on Ken. He is still out there and he is still doing well. I did blatantly ask him, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, how many of his colonies survived. He responded with a thumbs up <laughs> and that's all he ever said. No, no numbers. No, it's no just numbers. a thumbs up. So that's a good sign. <laughs> yeah. So I did try. Cause he was, he was like, I think it was, Um, I told you about the one he sent me the picture of like a winter wonderland. And it was about, Oh dear, this is going to be really hard because the bees didn't have enough food. And I was like, again, you didn't, you know, did you go in there and look and see how much they had or do a heft test or anything. But then I was like, well, so how many colonies, you know, finally made it after, after that last freeze and everything was over, like, what do you have left? And I got a thumbs up. <laughs> Lots of thumbs up. <laughs> so anywho, um, I think, Oh, one other little, little thing for people listening. Well, this is, this is one of those tricky things, I can say this, and then it, you may or may not ever hear it, so it may not matter, but I have been made aware. So we had video issues late last year or like mid last year where the app would not play videos. It would tell you that the video didn't exist or that there was an error. But oh, yeah. if you went into the web browser, the web browser would play the video. Mm-hmm. Now we are getting like every third video for whatever reason is not playing. Um, these are from, from patrons that have sent messages over the weekend. But the complete opposite is now apparently the solution. So the web browser is the one having the problems and won't play some of the videos. But the app, if you download and install the Patreon app on your phone, it does play the videos. So if you're listening to the audio version of this because you can't see the video version, you might try, if you're doing the browser, you might try flipping over to the app. I do have a message into them asking them, you know, if they are aware of it or what's going on the video settings, I went back and checked. They're not any different. All the video settings are identical all across the board. Yeah. There's no, you know, like this one wasn't private versus that one's restricted or anything like that. So I don't know. Um, I do know though that Patreon is working on their own video platform where you upload the video directly Uh, to them and they play it. And I have a sneaking suspicion that part of the issues are because of that and I don't know if that's like, oh, because we're working on things and and therefore it's causing glitches or if it's we're causing glitches to make you not happy with that so that when we roll this out, oh. you'll switch over to this. I don't know. You know, it's, it's one of them. I can have conspiracy theories. But I apologize if you're unable to see a video, if there's a video out there and you are on the. Be Academy tier, the $10 tier, and you're not able to see something for some reason, shoot me a message either on Patreon or via email or Facebook or Instagram, whatever, and let me know. And uh, worst case scenario, I can send you the direct link to that video if need be. So I uh, just wanted to, to announce that because that was something over the weekend that was kind of a frustrating event for a couple of our patrons. So um, I think that's it. That's all the updates I have. You have anything? <laughs> No, uh, are those posted on YouTube
0: at all? Is no. there a way to no? no, like on private and it's as well, a it's gap measure
1: on Patreon. You have one option, and mm-hmm. that is Vimeo. Oh, okay. You have to upload them to Vimeo, and then you can share the link from Vimeo to Patreon, and Patreon then displays the image. And that first time that there was the problems, Vimeo had updated their their software and their uh, coding. And Patreon, when they updated theirs, they only updated half of it, which is why the app wouldn't work, but the web browser would. And they okay. since got that fixed, but now we're having other issues and Vimeo hasn't done an update. So that's why I was speculating it's it's on Patreon side. But anyhow, um, no, they're not out there on YouTube or anything. It's, it's Patreon specific only. So hopefully it's just temporary. Hopefully so. Hope so. <laughs> hopefully out. they roll out their, their own video thing. Because right. I'm perfectly fine. It saves me a step. If I can upload directly to Patreon, then I don't have to. Because right now I do it. I edit it. I upload it to Vimeo. Vimeo has to upload it, then convert it, then generate the link. Then I have to add the link back to Patreon. And Patreon then generates a video. It's, it's ridiculous. That so, sounds
0: complicated. It's
1: fun. Um, <laughs> not fun. So today, the day's episode, the, the title of this episode is... Um, multi-directional, which may not mean anything when you first read it or look at it. it. It's kind of confusing on purpose. But this sprung from a conversation that I had while I was talking to a small beginner beekeeping group in California. And it has to do with, in a nutshell, when bees expand, where do they go? Like, is it, do they, do they need to go up? Do they need to go down? Should they go side to side? Like what's the deal? And in all honesty, we can, we can look at this from a general standpoint of what happens in nature. They are going to move into a cavity, move up to the highest point typically that they can reach. Sometimes there's something that impedes that and they will start, you know, midway for some reason, but usually they'll go to the top of that cavity. They form their comb at the top. The, the single comb starts and expands downward and outward until it reaches the constraints of whatever it's in. Then they build another comb beside that. So you're getting downward expansion and you're getting horizontal expansion all at the same time. And because of those two factors, that's why a warre hive or a top bar hive both function, quote unquote, in a natural setting for the bees because they're building from the top down And they're also expanding on that horizontal plane. So they'll go as far as they can with their cavity. Now, the one thing that that does not explain is a Langstroth hive. Because in a Langstroth hive, they start at what was the top and then you put a new box above that and suddenly there's a void of space above their head, which technically invalidates the way that they would do it in nature. So that's the one oddity. However, they don't like anything that invalidates their bee space. So they will move up there and they will draw out that comb because there's now a void up there that they can utilize, but it's not necessarily the natural progression of the comb. So the topic multidirectional has to do with comb growth and direction. And my question to you is because you do have this working apiary that literally has every type of hive you could almost conceive Not every type, but I'm a collector and it's getting there. (laughs) I said almost, there was some, there was air quotes in there. Almost every type there are, so you do have Warre hives and you do have Langstroth hives. So if we just focused on those two, which would you say seems to, just from a comb building expansion prospect, which one seems to go smoother or faster?
0: Uh, definitely, I would say, basically, the principles of vertical expansion in this case, the uh, one that where you're putting the boxes underneath, uh, basically, Niger-ing it's called uh, undersuperring, uh, which is what Warrior does, but you can also do it in Langstroth, basically. But as soon as you put a box on top, it's exactly what you say. And as part of our beekeeping 101 classes, we ask people to think about that because they will build from a roof above their head downward and uh, expand sideways. Very um, rarely will you see any kind of comb being built upward. Uh, I have seen it happen in removals sometimes and in um, where I I had put a box on top when I shouldn't have and they will build sometimes upward but that's not their preferred setting. They typically will go from a roof and hang those combs down with gravity. And uh, 90% of the removals that I've heard from um, several removers, you might have a different experience, but 80 to 90% of them are in soffits or horizontal configurations as opposed to vertical. And that kind of speaks to the preference of the bees. Um, I would say that the most a natural way would be to avoid putting that empty space on top of their head. Absolutely. Now, the other aspect of that, and, and that's why worry um, is a little bit more natural from that standpoint, but you could achieve that result by undersupering in the Langstrass as well. The other aspect of that is building comb um, from, excuse me, <clears throat> from the top and letting them uh, build foundationless to their liking is also somewhat more natural because it's not as constrained as it is is in a a frame, which tends to um, make the comb a little bit more rigid. And especially if you're using foundation, it's gonna be that much more rigid and it's gonna somehow muffle the vibrations and the communications, therefore impacting some of that um, foraging efficiency, if you will. From uh, for for the bees for the colony as a whole, I would argue it also is detrimental to the um, efficient maintenance of temperatures, especially in the winter when they're trying to stay warm. Where you have that plastic in the midriff of the comb, that's um, kind of a barrier to the efficient um, spread of uh, the stuff. Yes, the, the, the yellow the or black stuff. Yeah, the plastic <laughs> in the middle. So you can achieve similar results if you go foundation less and if you super. I mean under super, meaning put the boxes at the bottom as you in a Langstroth as you would in
1: a warre hive.
0: So it is different. I would definitely say warre is more natural, but there's ways to kind of work it into the system as well.
1: So here's a question. This isn't. This is a legitimate question. This isn't a leading question where I already know the answer. So, um, did warre a- precede Langstroth? Was Waray, does it predate it?
0: You know what? I do not know. I believe so. Okay. I believe it was before.
1: Because because yes. that was kind of my thought. And I was going to make a logical, rational leap there with that, is that Waray, you start off and you're you're kind of observing what the bees are doing in nature. And you're looking at the, how they would build their colony. And so they designed the setup to mimic that So that it's the least disruptive and the most kind of hospitable to the bees. But what then the outcome of that is, is you have this monstrous heavy hive that you've got to lift the whole thing up to put a new box underneath. And they started to have to to build like winch systems, almost like cherry pickers and winch and levers to lift these hives up to under super it so that they could do the nadiring and put it down below When Langstroth designed his, you know, he's going through and he's thinking about bee space for combs. He's thinking about removable combs. He's thinking about saving resources so that you, when you put a resource back into a colony, they can still have that comb and reutilize it. And another thing that is solved there is, well, why are we putting boxes below when you got to lift all this heavy stuff? We could put the new box on top and you don't have to lift the rest of the colony and move it. So most like most things in beekeeping, a lot of the advantageous leaps of design and things are more for the beekeeper nine times out of 10 than they are for the bee. They don't necessarily go to do like, well, this is what the bee needs, you know? Um, so it kind of makes it a little bit tricky. The the one thing that now also just a little note in there, old style warree hives are not legal hives. New style warree hives are because the old style warree the combs were never made to be taken out. They weren't able to be separated. The new style, they do have a little bar in there that kind of acts like a top bar that gives them a guide on where to build the comb and you can pull that out. They're still going to try to attach it to the sides of the boxes and you still have to cut the boxes in two, but it made it a way that it can be quote unquote inspectable where you can pull an individual comb out and look at it. And that's like the big thing about, is it a valid legal hive versus one that's not? And that's mainly... I. if, I don't know what other countries do, but the United States mainly does that. If you can't take out the comb and inspect it, it's not a valid hive structure. You need to put it into a like valid hive. Yeah, right, right. So, but so the, the question actually spawned from something very simple. It was, uh, the lady had, do you have a, a thought that goes on to that? I can hang on. Well, because I was uh, doing a quick, uh, go, oh, you search. looked, you looked, yeah. yeah okay. Uh,
0: well basically emil warre was um uh, he came along after langstroth so oh, the amazing. assumption is that the warre hive came after langstroth but i that was a quick google search so i would have to kind of keep looking for that and verify that because he'd been uh in 1948 emil warre had been doing it for 30 years um but he was born um 186 he was uh, 1867 and died in 1951 and then langstroth was born in 1810 and died in 1895 so the assumption is
1: langstroth Langstroth did it first interesting Mm -hmm. so that's the opposite of what i was thinking then so they Mm -hmm. they took the langstroth concept and tried to make it more natural taking Mm -hmm. away some of the aspects that langstroth had put in to make it more beekeeper friendly
0: but you know i don't know if uh, a lot of people know that but if you read the the writings of um langstroth first of all he was not necessarily the first inventor of that he's the one that commercialized it and made it more uh, popular but the concepts uh, uh in the book that he wrote about the langstroth hive it was very well insulated with it was made i think out of glass inside as ins- a layer of um vacuum basically to insulate the hive a lot more. What is, happened over the years is when commercial beekeepers adopted the Langstroth hive they did away with all that extra insulation all the extra more natural features of the Langstroth hive for the sake of um being able to transport those hives and making them cheaper and they gave away a lot of the insulation increased the problems with the chimney effect and all of the other things that we talk about a lot but that was not originally the intent with Reverend Langstroth
1: That's very good to know actually mm-hmm. uh, So, okay. So then going back around the the question that actually spawned the the conversation that I was having with the California beekeepers was that she had put on a new box and they had drawn out a single comb in the middle. Mm -hmm. And then the question was, oh, oh dear, what do I do? Do I leave Mm -hmm. it up there or do I move it? And, you know, like anything, if you like, I started to do just an, an initial knee jerk reaction, And uh, the lady that was hosting the talk stopped and clarified the situation Mm -hmm. and circumstances that were going on, which then made the answer a little bit easier because it became ultimately, it's whatever you want to do. If you want to leave it up top, that's what the natural process of of Langstroth beekeeping is going to be. You leave it up top, they're going to expand up into the new box, fill it out, and you just add another one when they get to that 80-90% threshold. Mm
0: -hmm. But if you
1: wanted to put it below you could, and they're absolutely going to move down because that's their natural inclination yeah. in nature is to move down yeah. as they expand and, and grow the colony. So, but it it did kind of it was one of those questions that comes up a lot, and it's something that is a big debate between even like Langstroth, your vertical beekeeping versus horizontal beekeeping. Regardless if you're going up or down. And then you throw in, well, now we're going left to right. And people are like, oh, but that's that's not what the bees do. The bees grow up. No, they only Absolutely. grow up. Yeah. yeah, they only grow up because you keep putting empty boxes above them. <laughs> that's the only reason they're growing up. If you if you put them below, they would grow down. They have
0: down. no space to go laterally. Right. And
1: that's the but, but they are growing laterally the whole time, horizontally, mm-hmm. because what's happening is the first comb is here. Then they Mm -hmm. move over and they build another. And then they move over and they build another. So what's happening each time they build that new comb, they're expanding on a horizontal plane. The size of the comb goes up or down. And in their perfect world, that's one solid comb. It's not divided by boxes and extra boards. It's one continuous comb that runs the whole length. And you brought up like doing removals. If they're in a soffit, that comb is only going to be literally this tall. You're talking six inches, maybe in most soffits of comb. Now the roof does pitch up. So you'll have a small comb out here. That's like three or four inches. And then you'll get five and then six. And then you'll have some comb in the very back corner of the soffit. Sometimes that can reach eight or nine inches, but that's Mm -hmm. it. The rest of it though, is they're expanding outward and they hit 16 inches. If the rafters are actually set up, you know, at a, at a 16 inch gap, if not, it's two foot, they hit that boundary And again, depending on the construction, if they can go over or under Mm -hmm. that rafter, they will continue into the next soffit space and continue on this horizontal expansion. Right. If they're in your wall, though, now they're confined to 16 inches. They can't go any further than 16 inches. And they only have a depth of maybe six inches, but -hmm. they have a height of eight foot. Mm -hmm. And they will literally build. Sometimes the combs are turned where you're looking at the edges. Sometimes mm-hmm. they're turned where you're looking at the face. If you're yeah. looking at the face, they've got a 16 inch wide comb that literally mm-hmm. could run eight foot down. If mm-hmm. you're looking at the edges, they might have 12 comb in there that are only three or four inches wide, but they run eight foot down. And that's still one continuous comb travels the vibration all the way up and down, you know, helps their communication. But that's what the bees are doing. They start at the top they expand that single comb downward and outward at the same time until they hit the constraints of the box that they're in or the shape of whatever cavity it is. And then they build their next comb. And that next comb is always on a horizontal plane moving outward.
0: Well, it only takes looking at an open air hive or one that's in a cave or something to see what the bees do naturally. They will build from that ceiling down and out and they will go further down, but, before they do that, they will expand laterally. And that's why you have those big, you know, open air hives. Um, they will not build on top of that.
1: Once no, it's they, they don't. they don't start building Once a comb upside there. down, yeah. building up from the branch, Once no.
0: Once there, usually, and the, that roof is, is um, basically closing that space. They will not be able to do that, but they will always build downwards
1: that way. Yeah. The other thing with your open air hive too, is it, it makes a perfect shape to it. They it's always gone. have that, that comb in the middle will be the longest. And then the ones beside it on each side will progressively get shorter. And it almost mm-hmm. makes like a half of an oval kind of shape where you have that natural hanging effect of gravity, just like the bees when they go through and they festoon, they hang that's down.
0: Good. Yeah, that's the, when you take a chain or, or a rope and you hold both ends, that's called a caten- catenary curve. Yep. So depending on the length and of that, a rope and how far apart you hold it that's a mathematical shape that the bees actually do respect
1: yeah they do they and so you'll you'll see that open air colony it's not going to have one comb here that's super big and then it just progresses this way they will actually go on the other side of that as well and they will okay. expand in both directions until something stops them it's magical <laughs> it's magical it's wonderful uh, <laughs> magical wonderful world of bees uh, <laughs> Yeah. So, but again, I just wanted to be able to go through and discuss it, hash it out and talk about the different aspects of it, because a lot of times we can get caught up in the beekeeping mindset of it and the different camps and parties that say it must be this or it must be that or it has to be this. Well, because they do this. Well, but they but you're only basing that on what they're doing inside your man-made container
0: opportunistic, they won't right. do what they need to do. Um, now, if they're gonna build vertically, usually they do prefer when it's well insulated on the outside. But the other aspect of this is if we are gonna give them man-made um, boxes, we need to keep in mind what that implies on the thermodynamics level, right? If you have a vertical cavity that's poorly insulated, you have a huge chimney effect with potentially some condensation at the top that's uh, falling on the bees and uh, highly inefficient heating patterns in the winter. And that air, that hot air, tends to escape at the top if there's any kind of opening. And in the summer, that's the opposite, where it gets super hot at the top, and it tends that cool air tends to escape. So it's highly inefficient if you don't have the insulation around it. Um, If you have a horizontal configuration, that bird's nest is sitting right there under the barge, under the top, and so that heat in the winter is staying with that bird's nest instead of rising above their head. Um, And and I think personally. From the experience, from what we see in the hundreds of Langstroth and horizontal uh, colonies that we manage, that it's a lot more efficient for them to be in a horizontal configuration to manage the conditions, the temperature and the humidity in their
1: brood's nest. Yeah, and this is a little bit off the topic of like the comb direction, but because you brought up thermodynamics and the temperature aspect of it. Whenever you're you're going through and you live in a climate where you feel like you may need to insulate your hives, and it doesn't matter if it is a top bar hive or a, a langstroth hive, you're right. putting some extra layer of insulation around the outside of it because maybe it probably in all likelihood is only built of three-quarter inch wood. Right. You know, it's one inch, but it's compressed down, so it's really only three quarters of or three, yeah, three quarters of an inch. Um, so you're going through and you insulate it. I did have one of the listeners from the main podcast reach out last week concerned because they had already taken the insulation off of the hives and they were going to have another cold snap come through that was going to last two or three days and they were worried what should i do and the the reminder that i want everybody to have is that if you do go through and insulate your hive keep in mind the bees normally live inside of a tree cavity and a tree cavity has a minimum of three inches of solid wood all the way around it that's more than even our two inch lumber for the like the lesson natalie's be mindful top bar hive design, you've got that two inch thick lumber there. A tree is even thicker than that. So they're used to that insulation and that insulation is there year round. It doesn't just help with the cold. It also helps with the heat. That extra padding, if there's a variant change in temperature outside, it takes longer for that change to actually affect the internal temperature of that colony so they can regulate those thermodynamics and they can adjust better for it. So if you did insulate your hives. Leave it on, leave it on there. It doesn't matter if you procrastinate and you take it off and like your main nectar flows already started, it doesn't matter because it's only going to help the bees, it's not going to hinder them in the summer months and in the warm months but what can hurt them is if they need to be insulated you insulated them and you take it off too early. Well Mm -hmm. now it's going to be a drastic change for them because all winter they've had that padding in there. And all of a sudden they don't have it and a cold snaps coming. So don't ever worry about like, oh, I left the insulation on too long. There's no such thing.
0: (laughs) The abrupt changes is what's going to kill your bees, right? It's uh, they're, they're going to be, if they're exposed to drafts, that's really bad in the winter. But then the next worst thing is to have them sustain uh, drastic changes of temperatures. So having a thermal mass that keeps them um, changing you know temperatures in a much more smooth way is going to help protect them the um the cold um especially is is an issue for the bees they they tend to expend much more energy trying to maintain core temperatures and and if they don't if they're not so if the hive is not as well insulated it's actually more difficult for them to maintain that core temperature they're going to expend more energy trying to stabilize the nest temperature and conditions that homeostasis that they're trying to keep that balance that they're trying to keep. And so they're not only going to expend more energy and go through more resources, but whether it's in the winter or in the summer, just like you said, that lack of stabilization will cost them more resources. And in the end, uh, if you don't care as much necessarily about the bees well-being, you should in the end care about your uh, honey crop. It's still going to eat up at the amount of energy that they're going to need for uh, maintaining that balance. So it's gotta come from somewhere and it's gonna come from their stores.
1: That's true. And that's also, if your colony started to brood up, mm-hmm. they now have more mouths to feed and they're mm-hmm. gonna be not only, so without brood present, the colony is happy to stay around 60, 50. you know, They can do okay right. at that, but when there's brood present, it has to be in the mid nineties. It has to, there's no choice or the brood dies. So now, instead of coasting along with a minimal energy input and output, they now have to massively increase that energy export, which means they've got to eat a lot of food. Plus, they've got all those little mouths that they've got to feed as well, so your food stores can go away in an instant.
0: Which is why I like to tell my students: did not uh, feed them pollen supplements in the in the spring, uh, because that can lead to those conditions and cold snaps and chill brood and potentially death of the colony. And if it doesn't, it potentially will lead to premature swarming, losing your mated queen and having a young and mated queen that's not going to find drones.
1: That's right. So, yeah, that's it. Uh, catching a swarm early in the year is beneficial to whomever catches that swarm. And it's beneficial for the swarm because it may be too early for them to swarm and there may not be resources for them to grow. But the colony that that swarm left oftentimes can be screwed because exactly what you said, it's too early. There's no drones available to mate with. Yes, they will raise a new queen, no problem. But what is she going to do? If -hmm. she can't mate, say she only finds a couple of drones to mate with, she's going to come back and she's going to lay for a little bit. And then all of a sudden she's going to have this shoddy brood pattern or there's going to start being drones in there. Or she doesn't mate at all, and she just initially right off the bat is a drone-laying queen. So you you have other issues that can cause that colony to fail as well by doing that. So it's a very tricky beekeeping in and of itself. Is It's like walking a tightrope.
0: <laughs> well, and the less you may miss with their natural cycles, I think the better off you are, because the bees know what they're doing. And for the most part, they will follow the cycles of weather and forage if you let them. If you intervene, you're screwing their compass.
1: Yep. And the other problem with that nowadays, and we're way off topic from where we started. Yeah, we are. That's that's okay. (laughs) Um, The other problem with that is climate change and the, the changing weather patterns and changing when does spring really occur in your area and when does it not? And the bees on their own accord, regardless that they've been there year after year after year, they go by the signals that they find out in nature. And if nature is saying, there's no flowers blooming, the bees are not going to start ramping up just because the calendar says spring right. has started. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the other reasons why following the bees and following their intuition, they're taking into con in, into consideration everything that's going on in their environment. You may just be taking into consideration one or two little aspects and you've got to hook all that together. But that's why pushing them, if you do, I'm not saying that you should, but if you do push them then you have to commit to it and you have to stay the course. You can't just willy nilly, you know, like Ken said, I'm going to feed the bees this week. What happens if he feeds them this week and then he doesn't feed them again? Why are you feeding them? Well, that's, that's another point. Why are you feeding them? I can answer that question. He hasn't looked and he assumes they need food, (laughs) (laughs) but if you're going out there and you're feeding the bees and there's no food available, they're going to take that as an incoming resource and they're going to be like, woohoo, and they will start doing things. And then all of a sudden there's no more food because right. there's no food in nature. So if you do start, you have to see it through and Get that's it. going to re- incur more management and more actual mm-hmm. manipulation of your colony than if you let the bees go on their natural course. So exactly. yeah, that's just, it's one of them things. It's, it's a learn, it's a give and a take all the way through. It doesn't matter, but there you go. <laughs>
0: I think the best thing is to always understand why the bees do what they do and what how tightly uh, in sync they are with the local cycles of weather and forage. And as soon as you do that, you you have won half the battle there.
1: That's true. It that is very true. It's it's being a beekeeper. You didn't know it when you started, but it mm-hmm. also means you need to be a master botanist. Yes. You need to know. You you need to have some meteorology in there. You got to know the weather. Like there's all these other little aspects that come into play that, you know, you were like, but I just, I just wanted to keep bees because I like honey. I just wanted to put bees in a box and get the honey (laughs) when I was done. That's right. I just, I saw that commercial. You just go out there and you turn the tap and honey (laughs) comes out, right? We (laughs) started. Oh, well, so hopefully uh, everybody has uh, learned several things from this, both the multi-directional aspect of how comb is built and the natural expansion of the colony inside a hive as well as some more insights on thermal dynamics and the fact that you needed to go out there and get a degree now in botany and meteorology and several right. other things. Among everything else, right? Happy beekeeping, surprise. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> right, bye. <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, anyhow, so again, I, I hope that you found some uh, little bits of information in here that will be helpful. It's actually a very good discussion and it's very insightful because- it is from the perspective of the bees that you draw the most intuition on what you should do as a beekeeper. So definitely keep that in mind. But we will uh, we will call this one good. We'll be back with everybody next week with another beekeeper chat on some other random topic. Who knows? I don't know. Um, and we'll go off topic again. That's right. And we'll go off topic because that's half the fun of it. So there you go. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in and everybody be good out there. Be mindful. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
0: This Hive Jive production was made possible by amazing patrons like you. And we appreciate your support. To all our Hive Jive junkies out there, you truly are the bee's knees.